For this episode of Studio Sinister, listener discretion is advised. Hey there, Sinister Seekers. Welcome to another chilling episode of Studio Sinister, where your hosts, Farah, and alongside me is my best friend and partner in all things eerie. Courtney. Your guides through the twisted paths of the strange, the unexplained, and the downright sinister. Ooh. Today we dive in a story that has haunted the American psyche for over half a century. A tale that is as disturbing as it is fascinating. But before we get into that, we of course need to start with our What's Haunting Us segment because we both have some really cool things to go through. I went first last week, so Courtney, you get to go first this week. Dude, I feel like I've had so many things to update you on. We took a bit of a break just because life gets in the way, obviously. I feel like we haven't had a chance to sit down and talk to each other face to face in a while. But number one, I will say it is freezing here, which is first and foremost what's haunting me. Earlier this week, or I guess I should say last week, it was negative 27 where I live out here in Montana. And it was to the point where we had to bring our rooster inside. He's still inside because it's about to drop in the negatives again tomorrow. It's insane. The fact that it got that cold, and now I'm living literally with a rooster in my house. Which is so cute, though, because you know me. I love chickens and roosters, so I can understand that. If I had my chickens and roosters still, I was planning on doing the same thing. They were mm-hmm. going to be in that back room in the cabin with blankets and heat yeah. and everything else. But, yes, it's cold here, too, in Tennessee. So it's I saw that five, and Jake's had off of school. For the past couple of days. He does remote learning. That's a good thing. How has your commute been starting out with work with this weather of all times for you to start yeah. commuting to work? So it's been fine. Obviously, Todd and I are comfortable driving in snowy conditions. I will say with how cold it's been, our car over the weekend, actually, it didn't want to start. He went down to town to pick up something from the grocery store and he couldn't get the car to start. And he basically sat there and let it run on the electric portion. How you can start the car, but not fully. He let it do that for a little while. And eventually it gave it enough to be able to turn back on so he could drive back up the hill. That said, the there's a pass in between our house and our office. And it can be pretty nasty. Today was the worst that it's been since I've started commuting back. And probably since at least the start of the winter season this year. Just because it's been a really brown, dry winter. And then all of a sudden, at the start of the year, we just got pounded with a winter storm. So yeah, it's been it's been an interesting commute. I will say we've been late to work every day since that occurred. But places out where you live, are they more understanding, though, since it is yeah. Montana? Yeah. So they... We're surprised that we came into the office today. However, in our town, it's weird because it's not that far of a commute, right? To me, it's a reasonable amount of time to drive, especially coming from Atlanta, because in Atlanta, I would drive like an hour and a half one way to get to the office. So 45 minutes isn't too terribly bad, but there's literally a whole ass mountain in between the town that we live in and the town that we work in. And The town that we work in is on the rain shadow or whatever it's called. So when we left the house today, it was like, oh, yeah, like it's cold, but it's not snowing. Conditions seem okay for us to drive. We got into the pass and it was like snow drifts, like in the left lane. It was insane. So 
yeah they're they're a lot more understanding just because it can be like obviously really treacherous but today we just didn't realize it was that bad until we were so i don't know if we'll go to the office tomorrow but we'll see <laughs> when i lived in pennsylvania i'm used to driving in the snow mm -hmm. i can do that it's the tense feeling that you get behind the wheel. So when you finally get to work, it's like you just ran a marathon. You're looking everywhere and you're trying to you know, stay slow and always make sure that you're paying attention to where mm -hmm. everyone else is because no matter how good of a driver you are, doesn't mean that everyone else is a good driver. It's exactly. And I think the other thing too that really freaks me out, I don't know if it's just like my anxiety or if like other people have this experience to anybody who's listening out in the Midwest, you might be able to attest to this, but have you ever driven in icy conditions and feel almost like the backside of your car is like catching up with you? I hate I it. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yes, it is yeah. very scary. And it's, I'm in an all wheel drive super route back. So I know like consciously, I don't think that's actually happening, but I was driving to the store the other day. I had to pick up just a few things and I'm like, I can brave it just to drive out of the neighborhood and get to the grocery store. And as I'm doing that, I'm like, you know what? I feel like the car is sliding out from behind me. And I'm not sure if it was, but it felt like that just because of how icy I knew it to be on the roads. Yeah, not to talk for five minutes about the weather, but that's what's haunting me. It's fucking cold. Let's just let all of our listeners know too, that if you are experiencing awful conditions, make sure that you take your time. If you're not called off of work, Leave yourself extra time to get to work so you're not stressing out and you're not having to hurry because I've seen the worst. Where I used to live in Pittsburgh, that I-79, it would be like mm. backed up because you get the semis that think that they can still go 75, 80 miles an hour. Dude, yeah. And then they're sliding everywhere. I remember working the one hospital that I worked in years and years ago. It was a 97 car pileup. Oh God. There were people that were dead. There were people coming into our hospital, <laughs> broken awful. pelvises, legs. You get the wrong people that are on that road. I don't know who caused it, but mm. all I know is when I used to drive and commute, the semis would always scare the shit right. out of me. You're like throwing snow all over me into my yeah. vision. It's scary out there. So everyone be safe. We'll pray for you to get back and forth to work safely so you can protect your family, provide for your family, but just leave yourself some extra time. Right. And don't drive if you don't have to. I think most companies are more than understanding, especially nowadays where a lot of work can be done remotely. Obviously, that's not the case for everyone, but just use an abundance of caution as you're commuting because no job is ever worth that. It's never going to be worth it. But Anyways, what's haunting you this week? And I think I know the answer, but. Yes, what's haunting me this week is I had come across a story. I was watching something on YouTube and everyone knows Chris Hansen, right? Chris Hansen, the To Catch yes. Predator guy. Yes. But what kind of sick senior citizen would send your kids a perverted picture like this? Okay. So I have an embarrassing story about him that I'll tell you guys in a minute. But yes, I know who you're talking about. Everyone knows that name rings a bell. He's the catcher predator guy, but he had covered a story recently on a gentleman named Peter Nygaard, which I just found fascinating, not in a good way, in a bad way, because I can't believe that there would be someone like this that has gotten away with what he's gotten away with for so long, but now he has been charged with everything. So 
This Peter Nygaard is currently 82 years old and has been convicted on a bunch of accounts of sex trafficking, sexual violence allegations, rape. But the main thing I wanted to point out about this gentleman is he would take young girls. Let me go back a little bit. He's been doing this for a very long mm -hmm. time. So okay. like the 60s, 70s, 80s, and he's a fashion mogul. So he's worth 700 million euros. Holy shit. Okay. So we already know right there that he's going to get away with tons of shit because he has the money to get away with it. Exactly. But he's been there were 57 alleged victims. 57? Now, now that's just what's coming up in the court case. But we have to remember there's probably some women that have passed away since he's done this. Yeah, in that's 50, true. 60s, 70s. What he did was he would invite slash date women that were younger, extremely younger. I'm talking 14, 15, 16 and up. He would intentionally impregnate them. Oh my God. Then abort them by either he would do it. He'd hire someone to do it or he would give a girl the day after pill. Okay. Or the one, the pill that makes you have an abortion. Right, your plan B. Right, right exactly. They have abortion pills, right, too? Is it the plan B or is it like the actual abortion pill? Plan B, I think, is the one that's the after, but there is a pill that you can take if you're a few weeks <sighs> pregnant, but then you'd have to be around him because he would want yeah. to take the aborted fetus and have his doctors take out the stem cells to be able to inject into himself because he thought that it would stop the aging process. First thoughts on that, Courtney, tell me what you think. <laughs> Sorry, I've been holding this in because to be honest, you sent me the video that you watched, the initial one that you watched weeks ago. I watched it and to be honest, I blocked it out of my memory. And then when you said intentionally impregnate them that's what when it all came back when i was like oh my god i remember this now what i'm gonna say is going to be very blunt what a fucking wackadoo are you kidding 57 minors and then it makes me want to cry I when i think about i was 21 before i had sierra i was pregnant with a child that i lost at seven weeks pregnant oh my god and it, I'm when sorry. you were a young girl, you do not understand stuff like that. And for these little girls to be swooned by money, and especially at a young age, they're finding that father figure that I bet you most they of were the being girls, groomed. most of the girls, a big percentage of them probably came from broken homes. So then yeah. you have him, like you said, grooming and all oh, I'm here for you, but to then get pregnant and have that roller coaster of I'm pregnant. Oh my gosh. And then, Oh no, you're not going to keep it. We're going to kill it. So I can have it for reasons that you're not going to understand. I just think this man is like you said, a fucking wacko and he should have been put in prison a long time ago. And I think there's a distinction that I'd like to make here how do i put this like delicately that isn't i don't know how i want to say this number one if you choose to have an abortion that's 100 your business i think the thing that really bothers me about this is they obviously were being groomed and they had no say in the future of that child you know what i mean i'm sure that's an awful thing to go through no matter which way you slice it and then on top of that to have him then use the child that you conceived 
as like a fountain of youth sort of situation is just so right. beyond fucking weird to me. Again, like I said, if that's what you choose to do in terms of you or I or anyone gets pregnant and they choose to have an abortion, that is a completely other conversation to have. I think the thing that really bothers me here is the fact that they had no say in it. Which there we are, a dude taking that away once again and then using right. it as a fucking fountain of youth. And it's just so weird and icky. And it's like you're playing God. And I don't know. I think it's fucking disgusting. And you look at a picture of him and it apparently didn't work. Like Wait, when I want to see him. Wait a minute. Do you have see screen share? That is still so Can you nasty. see him? Oh, it looks like he looks like one of the guys from Siegfried and Roy, the tiger guys in Vegas. Yeah, <laughs> to me, he doesn't look like an actual. It looks like he's wearing a mask, like a leather mask. Like he looks scary. But he's old. You've been doing this since the 50s, 60s, dude. Apparently it did not do shit for you. Isn't that crazy? Is that a current picture? This is three years ago. Okay. Yeah. I don't know, man. And like, that's just so beyond weird to me to conceive a child, so, yeah. use it in, in order to play God, to make yourself look younger, which it's, that was like, you obviously don't understand, not that I do, but like, to me, injecting yourself with stem cells isn't, I, I don't know the science behind it, I guess is what I'm trying to say, but obviously I don't think that is going to help the anti-aging process. You're going to age. It's a, that's a fact of life. That's so weird to me. There's no way that you're going to be able to turn back that clock. As much stuff as you do and apparently didn't help, he still looks like he's 80 years old. And I put up the picture for you. He's like a Jeffrey Epstein before Jeffrey Epstein God. came to be. Because as oh my you God. see, he has an orgy island in the Bahamas. Fashion mogul Peter Nygaard allegedly held parties that were often one big orgy at his 150,000 square foot private resort. One of the girls, let me show you. And look how pretty she is. I was going to say she's really gorgeous. Sue Lynn Medeiros is her name. She had said that the tycoon allegedly ended up establishing his stem cell research company on the island of St. Kitts near his home in the Bahamas. So he actually built a stem cell research for all of this. Do you realize how many people have known about all of this that have worked for him? And it's just all coming out now, but like they knew all of this going on. And right. The other thing too, that I keep going back to that I don't think we really touched on enough because honestly, this whole thing is wild. He was doing this to young girls, really young girls. And then he had an island. Well, it's just, I, we got to, I, I have to put a pin in that because that really is just a whole other layer to this. But to have an island that you live at and then also have a stem cell research facility on top of that to, I guess, for your weird <laughs> desires. I don't know how else to put that. That's a good like, word for it. Weird and bizarre and disturbing. Well, There's so many to layers this, to the story. Listen to this disturbing quote that he had made. I may be the only person in the world who has my own embryos growing in a Petri dish, end quote. What? Okay. So that's what I mean is that look how nonchalant it was for him. Let's go back to he has an island with staff, mm -hmm. with doctor staff. Everyone has known this and no one said anything. The part of aborting these babies intentionally, look how many people didn't say anything. That just blows my mind. That's how much right. money can make 
anyone quiet, no matter if someone's getting hurt or not. Is there, I don't know. I feel like you'd have to know, but I'm wondering if maybe, but they're minors. I don't know. I'm trying to give like benefit of the doubt here. Maybe they were under the impression that this was like consent, like they wanted to donate. They had no intentions of keeping the baby and wanted to donate for stem cell research. But also at the same time, if they're all underage, could they even have the legal right to do that? I don't know. Not every single one of them were underage, but I still consider if a man's in his 60s and there's girls that are in their early 20s, to me, that's manipulation and grooming still. But yes, there were girls that were under 18, especially back in the day, more when it was okay for a man to marry a 15-year-old as long as the parents were cool with it. But this girl, Sue Lynn Medeiros, she wrote a 2014 memoir about a trip she took with Nygaard to Ukraine where he was having stem cell research done. It's even gone overseas. And she said he asked, Sue Lynn, do you know what the best stem cells are to which she had replied embryos and he said correct if you got pregnant and had an abortion we could use those embryonic cells and have a life supply for all of us you your mother and me a lot of people were doing it according to the book excerpts published in the new york post she said she was beyond stunned this was the sickest thing i've ever heard peter say she said I couldn't speak for a moment. Finally catching my breath, I said, Peter, I do not believe in abortion. Nygaard would host what he called pamper parties, often at his private island resort, Nygaard K in the Caribbean. So he even named his own island Nygaard K. He would allegedly choose out girls and then either force himself upon them, drug them, or offer cash. He is alleged to have targeted women and underage girls with the false promises of modeling opportunities before sexually assaulting them. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I forgot that he was a fashion mogul. Holy. That's why he's worth 700 million euros. Yeah, that makes sense. It's just there's a lot to unpack with this whole. I'm like. I'm reeling from this, if you can't tell. I just, it's disgusting. I think the best way to put it is like, what a fucking wackadoo this guy is. Well, will you try sleeping naked tonight? I sleep naked every night. But, yeah. And I hope that he spends the rest of his life in a degraded prison, just rotting away. He does not deserve to breathe any of the air that we breathe, but... Anyway, this is going to be such a fun episode. I can I'm already uncomfortable. (laughs) If I did not say this in the beginning, I will say it now. But of course, in editing, I will say it in the beginning, but I'm still going to say it now. For this episode of Studio Sinister, listener discretion is advised. I am someone that if you're going to know about a crime, you're going to know about the crime and you're going to know about what the victims went through. So you can understand that it's not a Hollywood film. There were actual people that died by the hands of the Manson family. We're going to dive into a story that continues to captivate and horrify us in equal measure. Brace yourselves as we journey into the dark world of Charles Manson, the Manson family, and the Manson family murders. In the late 1960s, Charles Millis Manson, or Miles Manson, emerged from the underbelly of society. A man who was not just a criminal, 
but a charismatic cult leader who manipulated his followers with an intoxicating blend of pseudo-religious teachings, drug-induced mind control, and his own twisted interpretation of popular music. His followers, known as the Manson family, were not your typical criminals. They were young men and women drawn from middle-class families, impressionable minds, seduced by Manson's magnetic personality and his promise of a utopian society. But this was no utopia. It was a breeding ground for some of the most shocking crimes in American history. The Manson family murders a series of brutal killings that shook Hollywood to its core and sent shockwaves across the nation. Innocent lives were taken in cold blood, all of at the behest of one man, Charles Manson. Over the next hour or so, we will peel back the layers of this complex story. We'll explore how a petty criminal became a cult leader, how he twisted minds and turned ordinary people into murderers, how he orchestrated a reign of terror that still echoes in our collective memory. So turn down the lights and prepare yourself for a journey into the heart of darkness. Helter Skelter, revisiting the Manson family and the Manson family murders starts now. Nationwide crime is dominating the headlines here in America. Uh, Someone was murdered, I think. Where? Where? I lost her. I lost her. I lost her. I lost I just shot and killed my son, Max, and my wife, Michelle. We are attempting to stay one week at the official carnival. Yes. Recipe, poverty, drugs, child abuse. There's someone standing right there. You're going to get back to hell where you came from. Studio Sinister. So I want to begin, <clears throat> sorry, my voice is <clears throat> cracking up right now, but I want to begin by saying, Courtney, the pictures that you're going to see through this are horrifying. So I will tell you that right off okay. the bat. Let me set the stage for everyone. Charles Manson formed a commune called the Manson Family in the late 1960s. They attracted young, vulnerable individuals who were seeking meaning and a sense of belonging. Manson's manipulative tactics and his ability to exert control over his followers is truly mind-boggling. He preyed on their vulnerabilities and convinced them to carry out a series of heinous acts. Charles Manson had nothing. And he was able to take a group of men and women, and none of them had a speeding ticket, Mm -hmm. was able to take blunt instruments and stab 20, 30, 40 times into someone's flesh. And they were all fine with it afterwards. And the other thing too is, believe it or not, I do not really know all that much about the Manson family and Charles Manson. Obviously I've talked about Sharon Tate on haunts. Don the zombie here, butting in for a quick PSA. Make sure you follow and listen to Courtney's show haunts, because if you don't, I'll come to your house and eat your dog or your cat. Hamster, I don't care what kind of pet you have. But in regards to who this man actually is, it does seem like all he really had was his charisma and some sort of- LSD. Mind. LSD, okay, then that's Jesus Christ. Okay, we're in for a ride tonight, I guess. You are. So let me start with Charles's younger life. Born in 1934, 
to a teenage mom in Ohio, Charles Manson had a tough start right from the beginning. He had a thing for stealing, which led to a lot of trouble and him locked up often. So the scoop on Charles Manson's early years, Manson's childhood was anything but normal. His mom would often leave him alone while she went off on wild nights with her brother. One time, they decided to rob some unsuspecting guy and they got caught almost immediately. Manson's mom was sent to jail and he had to fend for himself until she was released when he was around eight years old. Oh my God. How many years? Then was he by himself? It didn't say how long he was by himself, but that is a very young age to be by yourself. Yeah. There's a saying in true crime that I, I go to a lot. It's hard to not feel bad for the child, but also at the same time, this man turned into like a horrific monster of a human being. At the same time, that is so sad. Like, that is so sad. I know. But it okay. doesn't give anybody right. time. We all have time from eight years old to know what is right from wrong. And I know Charles Manson had many times to do the right thing. Because everybody and, does. And I think, too, it still doesn't excuse the fact that you, not you, obviously, that he orchestrated such horrific events in our history that we still talk about to this day. We're all still very horrified by the things that he did. I don't know. I didn't know that about him. I didn't know. I don't know a lot about him. But anyways. Now, his mom tried to clean up her act by marrying a traveling salesman and trying to quit drinking. But by then, Manson was already a troublemaker. He was skipping school and known for stealing from local shops. Eventually, his mom looked for a foster home. Instead, he was made a ward of the state and ended up in a Catholic-run school for boys with behavioral issues. But Manson wasn't having any of it. He ran away. And his mother took him back barely a year into his time at school. Manson decided that he had enough, turning to burglary to get by. His actions caught up to him soon enough, and he ended up in a correctional facility in Omaha, Nebraska. He escaped from there too turning to breaking into grocery stores to survive. At just 13, he was sent to the Indiana Boys School, a tougher institution. Manson claimed that the other boys assaulted him there, and to protect himself, he would pretend to be crazy. Okay, what does that mean? Because remember, back in the day, crazy was scary. Even a woman, if she would get on her husband for being an alcoholic and scream Mm -hmm. and yell. And their bachelor parties, it's gross. It is gross. I just wish your friends were as mature as you. They are mature, actually. You just have to get to know them better. Paging Dr. Douchebag. He could easily drop her off at an insane asylum and say she was crazy. The same thing with, you could have, this is gross, but you could have your menstrual cycle and come to the same end which is mind-boggling to me but so that's what he did was he would just pretend to be crazy so they would look at him like you're a freak we're gonna stay away now when he was 16 manson made another daring escape this time with two other boys they stole a car and drove it across state lines which landed them in federal hot water Finally, the authorities caught up with them, and Manson was sent to the National Training School for Boys in Washington, D.C., starting a long stretch in the federal reformatory system. Throughout his time in these institutions, Manson committed a slew of offenses, including 
sexual assault. By the time of his release in 1954, Manson had shown signs of, quote, anti-social behavior and psychic trauma. Despite this, a period of good behavior earned him early release. Okay, that is appalling, but... Yep. I guess you can never know what a person will do, but still, like you said, if he hadn't been, where would we be right now? We may not even be talking about him. This was in 54, so 55, 56. It was more than 10 years. It was like 14, 15 years. But again, to me, that's enough time to be out in the world, get a job, get a place, settle down, try to bring spiritual sense into your life, get straight. And he found a wife and had a baby on the way. But old habits die hard. He found it hard to resist his preference for stealing. His failure to attend a hearing led him back to jail, this time for three years at Terminal Island, a federal prison in California. He was released in 1958. Going back to being released on good behavior. I'm assuming he hadn't at any point up until then committed any sort of violent act that we know of. It was just stealing cars. Uh, remember sexual assault. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's true. I forgot about that. Jesus. Okay. I'm trying to see the good, not in him, but like in, in humanity, but. Understandable. And I think that's what we all try to do on a daily basis. But this man, he's an exception. When he was released in 58, his wife had already filed for divorce and he turned to pimping to make a profit. Manson carried on with car theft and tricking people out of their cash when he ran off then to Mexico with a prostitute. Hey, good looking. Violating his probation, he was slapped with a 10-year sentence, which marked the start of a long stretch behind bars. During his time in prison, he picked up the guitar, studied Scientology, and dreamed of a career in music. Interestingly, he witnessed the rise of the Beatles from behind bars, and it influenced him. A lot. So let me, for a brief moment, I'm going to bring up. Is this going to change my perspective on the Beatles? I understand they had nothing to do with this, but I Um, love the Beatles. I'm going to play you one of Manson's songs. This one is called Cease to I love you, pretty girl. My life is yours. And you can have my world. Never had a lesson I ever learned, but I know we all get our turn. I love you. Never learn not to love you. So that was one of his songs. And tell me your first thoughts of what Manson sounded like. I don't expect you to say he's a god, but. I mean, I think the main thing, I'm trying to put my finger, he reminds me of someone specifically. It's not the Beatles. And I can't put my finger on it interestingly it wasn't bad but are you thinking like a bob dylan maybe no um, for some reason it reminds me of like his voice reminds me of what is that song it's like the day the music died i don't think that's the actual song american pie it reminds me of that you are right on it did sound like someone Mm -hmm. i know like the, the song itself. I miss America. Yeah, exactly. Yep. The song itself didn't sound like it, but at the very end, where he sings the chorus very slowly, his voice and the tone of it sounds like Charles Manson's voice, which 
that's I can't unhear that now. So that's fun. But let's take what he did out of the mm -hmm. picture as far as his music. I think he could have made something back in the 60s when that was what the yeah. music sounded like in early 70s. When Manson was finally let out of prison by age 32, he had spent over half of his life as a ward of the state. He felt more at home in prison than outside it and even asked if he could stay in. He has no plans for release, one report had stated. He says he has nowhere to go. Mance's personal life was just as chaotic as his criminal activities. He had quite a wild ride when it came to relationships. He went through multiple marriages that eventually ended in divorce. And let's not forget about his children who had their fair share of troubles too. It's worth noting that Manson also had a controversial relationship with a woman named Star, although they never tied the knot. In 1967, he met Mary Bruner in Berkeley, and that's when his family began. Manson was really good at convincing a bunch of people to join his group, although not all of them were directly involved in the murders. Some of them ended up distancing themselves from him. He first crossed paths with Dennis Wilson, the drummer of the Beach Boys, in 1968. Now, Wilson picked up two female hitchhikers, Patricia Krenwinkel and Ella Jo Bailey, who were members of the Manson family. Unaware of their connection to Manson at the time, Wilson gave these girls a ride and brought them back to his home. At Wilson's home, he encountered Manson and other members of the Manson family had moved in. Dude, sorry. You know the movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Yep, and that's what exactly is. that how this for. plays in? Okay, just making sure. Like, I've seen... I shouldn't say that I don't know anything about Charles Manson. It's more of... I don't have the full picture, but I watched that movie for the first time, like, maybe a year or so ago because someone mm -hmm. at work was like, dude, like, this is, like, all about... The Manson family, but in a distanted, distant sort of way. Like when you said that, I was like, oh my God, that is eerie to look at it from the true story behind it versus just the movie that was inspired by it. Okay, continue. Which I really did like that movie. I think that it was good if someone didn't know about the Manson family murders. It gave a general kind of what happened. Manson and his followers took up residence at Wilson's home. Initially, Wilson was fascinated by Manson's charismas and the communal lifestyle. Manson, in turn, was drawn to Wilson's celebrity status and connections in the music industry. During their time together, Manson and the family exploited Wilson's generosity. They lived at his home, consumed his resources, and even used his recording studio. Manson harbored aspirations of launching a music career, and Wilson helped him make connections in the music industry. Wilson was hampered because he was able to have all the free sex that he could with Manson's girls and all the drugs mm -hmm. that he could get. Dennis Wilson had all this free sex, free love. All these drugs were coming in, which then you can imagine Dennis Wilson probably slipped up at the tongue a few times and said, I'll introduce you to someone, Manson, and I'll make you famous. Which is where we come to the part of the man, Terry Melcher. Terry Melcher was a recording studio artist. Now, 
In this time, the association between Manson and Wilson eventually soured because Wilson became increasingly uneasy about Manson's influence on the family and their erratic behavior that he observed. As a result, Wilson distanced himself from Manson, reclaiming his home from the family. Wilson messed up by saying, I'm going to get you in contact with Terry Melcher. And that's where this whole Cielo Drive sucks because Terry Melcher did stay there at one time. So at the Terry, same house or just on Cielo Drive? No, at the same house on Cielo Drive. Holy shit. This was all a fluke. The Tate murders is horrible because they were renting that house. Right. Was he the owner? Terry Melcher was a previous tenant. He rented it previously. Okay. I'm just trying to get the full picture because. Now about the Manson family, their whole communal lifestyle was fueled by hallucinogenic drugs and Manson's delusional teachings about an impending apocalyptic race war called Helter Skelter. Their existence was marked by manipulation, fear, and an unwavering loyalty in their leader, Charles Manson. He wanted to create a race war between, in his words, the whiteies and the blackies. That is so beyond disturbing. Sorry, I'm not laughing. I I, like I am laughing, but not because it's funny. I'm just so incredible. Oh, I know. (laughs) That is so fucked up. Okay. The Manson members were. Charles Manson, of course, Charles Tex Watson, Bobby Boussoulet, Mary Brunner, Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, Patricia Krenwinkel, Leslie Van Hutten, and Steve Grogan. Those were the notable members of the Manson family. Do we know how many, like how many actual members there were? Like there there were a lot, right? There were a lot, probably less than a hundred. And they had stayed at the Spawn Ranch. So that's where the big group of them were. There was an old man named George Spawn, had an old Western set called Spawn Ranch, and that's where most Mm -hmm. of them had stayed. So this ranch was located in Los Angeles. The Manson family took over this once thriving Western film set, turned it into their commune. Spawn Ranch was dilapidated, isolated, and was the perfect place for Manson to enact his manipulative influence over his followers without the outside world's interference. They lived there rent-free. When you've probably seen some of this maybe in the movie that you talked about earlier, George, this old man, what do you think Manson did for them to stay there for free? He got to screw young girls and he got to have drugs. So there's that. George Spawn was blind as well. He was blind? I didn't know that. He was blind. Okay. Yes. Here's another really fun fact that I found out. Manson would give everyone a high dose of LSD, but he wouldn't take that. Oh, I think I actually heard that. So he would be able to screw with all their heads. He could have the right mind and be able to be strong and influence them to the max. Unfortunately, that makes sense. If you are a another wackadoo, that is going to be my word this episode. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Of course, that's what he would have done. If he wanted to have supreme control over these people, Mm -hmm. why wouldn't you 
stay sober with a cognizant mind while they weren't. Right. It's all about power and control. And now it's time for an intermission. Top off your drink, pop some more popcorn, whatever you crazy humans do. Oh, and a word from our sponsor, if you're weird. Check out the podcast, Where the Weird Ones Are. If you like the strange, spooky, smeared with some true crime, check out Total Conundrum Podcast. If you like witchy shit, check out Early on Wednesday, a podcast with two friends, Lavender and Stacy. They comb through wicked tales of the unusual and macabre. A lot of people don't know that there were others than just the LaBiancas and the Tates that were murdered. So there was a person named Gary Hinman. Amidst the nefarious activities of the Manson family, the Gary Hinman murder stands out as the initial violence that would later unearth the horrendous Manson family murders. Gary Hinman, a music teacher and PhD student in sociology, was a friend and occasional supplier of drugs to the Manson family. The saga started when Manson got word coming into an inheritance and a desperate need for money. Charles Tex Watson, along with Manson family members Mary Brunner and Susan Atkins, were dismissed by Manson himself to Hinman's home. Their goal was to convince Hinman to join Manson's commune and give his assets up to Manson. And Hinman was held hostage for a few days under brutal conditions. When their persuasive tactics failed, Manson was called for guidance, leading to Manson slashing Hinman's ear with a sword. Despite the brutality, Hinman steadfastly refused to part with his supposed inheritance. In a turn of events, Watson ended up stabbing Hinman to death on Manson's order. In an attempt to divert the investigation, they used Hinman's blood to paint the phrase political piggy on the wall. 
hoping to pin the murder on the Black Panthers, a known radical political organization at that time. Hinman's body was discovered several days later. So it was Bobby Boussoulet, Mary Brunner, and Susan Atkins were to get the money from Hinman. A lot of people don't know about that murder. It's worth mentioning. I didn't know that there were any murders beyond the Tate and LaBianca murders. That, to me, this one, obviously, it's just as horrific to torture a man and then murder him after days of brutal conditions. Are there more? Now, there was a Shay, Donald Shay, and he was also known as Shorty. He was a Hollywood stuntman, actor, and murder victim. The location of his body was discovered in 1977, eight years after his death. Manson family leader Charles Manson and Clem Grogan and Bruce M. Davis were eventually convicted of murdering Shay. And then on November 16th, 1969, the fully clothed body of a white female named Reet Jervitson was found by a 15-year-old boy who had been birdwatching. She died of multiple stab wounds, predominantly inflicted to her neck. A tree branch had prevented her body from rolling fully down the ravine and into a 699-foot-deep canyon. She was stabbed 157 times in the neck, chest, and torso with a common penknife. She was known to be possibly seen alive in the company of the Manson family prior to her murder, which this is what prompted police to suspect their involvement in the murder. Charles Manson was interviewed both before and after her identification, but denied any involvement. Nonetheless, a woman closely matching the description of the deceased had been seen days before the victim had been murdered with various inhabitants of Spawn Ranch. She was a pretty girl, too. They were trying to pin it on Manson, but yet they never did legally. Yeah, there was no conviction. Exactly. Okay. Let's get into the Tate murders, which happened first. I have Linda Kasabian brought up. I want you to hear and the listeners to hear her exact words of what had happened. It's just chilling to hear it from a person that was really there that night. Tate resident. There were lights on the outside. The driveway was lit up. Texas got rope around his arm. He's got wire cutters. And I remember thinking, why does he have that? He cut the telephone wires. There was a car coming, so we got down. Tex jumped out. Tex shot the gun four times. Take the wallet from the kid that he shot. I got in the car. There was this person slumped over. I didn't see any blood or anything. I knew he was. Tex told me to go to the back of the house. And him and the girls went to the front of the house. I went towards the house. There was a swimming pool there.
I felt like an empty shell. It's like my body was there, but I wasn't. Everything is locked. that I heard coming from the house were blood-curdling, chilling screams, screaming for your life. And I couldn't tell if they were male or female. They were just screams. Sadie comes running out. Give me a knife. Make it stop. Make it stop. It's too late. Just listen for sounds, okay? our man and he had blood all over his face and he looked right into my eyes and he was dying but in his eyes what I saw was that I felt he was dying because of me was stabbing him and he just kept stabbing him down to the ground. And I saw a woman in a white dress and she had blood all over her and she was screaming and she was calling for her mom and I saw Katie stabbing her. I thought about going to a house. There was lights down the road. And I was going to do that. And then I said, no, don't do that, because they'll find me and they'll go there and they'll kill all those people.
So that was a part in, it's called Manson's Night of Horror, The Day We Murdered Sharon Tate. It's actually on YouTube if you want to watch the whole thing. But just that part where the girl, Abigail Folger, was crying for her mother. That's the part that got me. What are your What are your thoughts on listening to that for the first time? I have a couple. Number one, obviously that was incredibly bleak. And I agree the part where Abigail Folger was calling for her mom. That just goes to show the fear that she must have felt in that moment. But beyond that, what was this girl's name, the one who narrated that? Linda Kasabian. Okay. Did she not... Was she not aware why they were going? I'm not sure if she was 100% aware of what was going to happen. Now, she had turned herself in December 69 and received immunity. She just died January 21st, uh, 2023 at the age of 73. You don't know what Manson said and what he made these people think. Apparently, Tex Watson knew what he was doing. He just went there and boom, boom. It seems to me that she obviously had a lot of remorse for the situation. And I think the part that really struck me, you could probably see my face, Farah, when she said, I was thinking, what's he going to do with that? In that moment, it seemed as though she had, she was starting to become aware of what was happening and may not have right. until that point. Not to excuse anything that occurred because the number of times that I've gone over this specific case, just Tate and her friends that night, right? It's horrific. And there's no other way to put that. But at the same time, I want to say somewhere, and this could, I might just be talking out of my ass, but I feel like a while ago I saw that I want to say that Tex was the only one who really had the full picture. Right. I'll agree with you on that. Yes. I don't know where I saw that. I want to say it came up while I was researching this for the episode I did about Rosemary's baby. And Mm -hmm. I I believe that I believe he was the one who really knew fully what the plan was. So Mm -hmm. I'm not surprised, I should say, that she wasn't aware, Mm -hmm. but it is still the whole thing is just bleak and really sad to see. And obviously she carried a lot of remorse, but that also at the same time comes with the territory, unfortunately. So I don't know. That was wild. And to put it into words, on the night of August 8th, Charles Manson instructed his follower, Charles Tex Watson, to go to 10050 Cielo Drive with several other cult members and commit gruesome murders. Manson knew of the house because of its previous tenant, music producer Terry Melcher who was the one that considered and then rejected giving Manson a recording contract. Watson, accompanied by Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Linda Kasabian, arrived at the estate. After midnight, they encountered Stephen Parent, the 18-year-old visitor, and Watson shot him to death. After breaking into the main house, the four residents, celebrity hairstylist Jay Sebring included, were gathered in the living room. Linked by ropes tied around their necks, Sabring was shot and stabbed to death, although Frakowski and Folger managed to escape. They were chased down and killed by Krenwinkel and Watson. Tate was fatally stabbed and Atkins and or Watson used her blood to write pig on the front door. I'm going to show Courtney the photos of the crime scene. These are the victims. Can you see that? 
Yeah, I can. Frykowski and Abigail Folger, they're the two that had made it outside, but still unfortunately met their demise. And then Stephen Parent wasn't even supposed to be there. He was just visiting a friend that I think he was either like a maintenance man or just like a house sitter guy. He lived on the premises, but wasn't in that house. He lived in the guest house, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, young. Holy cow. Very, Very young. So this is the scene of him in the car. That's exactly how the police found him. They discovered him wearing a red, white, and blue plaid shirt, blue denim pants, white socks, and black shoes. His left wrist was bare, but a severed wristwatch identified as his was found in the left rear passenger seat. Parent had a laceration on the palm of his left hand, indicative of a defense wound. The wound ran vertically with his arm, and the wristwatch band was undoubtedly severed during the attack. Parent appeared to have gunshot wounds on his face, left arm, and chest, and extreme rigor mortis was evident throughout the body. Postmortem lividity matched the position in which his body was found. This is Frykowski, again, the man that made it outside and was stabbed repeatedly by Tex. Watson. Oh my God. Is that from the autopsy? Yeah. The one. Okay. Both. Yep. That's from the autopsy and that's how he was found. From the crime scene. Oh my God. He was found lying on his right side, as you can see, with his head resting on his right arm and his left arm at his side with the forearm perpendicular to the ground. His left hand clutched grass. Frykowski wore a purple shirt, multicolored pants, and brown high-top shoes and socks, all drenched in blood. Numerous stab wounds were observed primarily on his left side, along with defensive wound on his right hand. Extreme rigor mortis affected his entire body. It's hard to look at to see what these people... It is. It's quite disturbing. This is Abigail. Oh my God. That's her face right there. And then to the right is her body where she was found. She was lying in the front yard, was positioned in an east-west direction with her head to the east and feet to the west. She wore a white, blood-drenched nightgown, numerous stab wounds in the upper torso and severe lacerations on her left side of the face. Defensive wounds were noted on both her right and left hands. Interesting that, and we'll talk about this more next episode. But she matches the description of a spirit at the Omen house a lot. That's all I'm going to say about that for now. And we'll circle back to that next time. But that is horrible. It's bleak. And it's sad to think that she might still be in that same state. And it's hard for me to even read this without choking up. I'm trying to get it out. And like Courtney said, we'll talk about this more. In the next episode that we're going to do, we'll cover the Omen House, which is a house that was built over that land where the house of Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate had lived at. They had caught an orb that had a little orb inside it. It was Sharon Tate and her baby. And that bothers me. One of the things that Sharon Tate had begged for before they killed her was let her give birth to her baby and then you can come back and kill me. She just wanted to see. Her baby. She was so happy to be pregnant. And I think that also brings it full circle. I'm, to be honest, I'm stalling because I know the next picture is hers. But it brings it full circle that Abigail Folger is crying for her mother. 
And then a mother is crying for the life of her child in the next room. It's awful. Then we get to Sharon Tate. Oh, my God. Sharon was found inside the living room, laying on her side with her head. Yeah, take a second. We can scroll past these images if you need to. Just give yourself a second. Yeah, she was found in the living room, laying on her side with her head to the south and legs in a fetal position to the north. Multiple stab wounds were noted on her breast, upper abdominal region, and right leg. She appeared to be uh, several months pregnant with dried blood smeared over her body, suggesting movement. And a nylon rope was wrapped around her neck, and the rope was connected to J.C. Bring neck two ends of the rope then went into a southerly direction running parallel with Sharon's body one end of this rope was wrapped around Sebring's neck and her and Jay Sebring once had a relationship yeah and I think it's worth mentioning here too that there were a lot of people who believed that he still loved her the same way he did before she married Roman Polanski. I personally don't know if she reciprocated that, but I'm sure that was hard for them to, for that to be the last thing that you see is somebody who you care for deeply, regardless if it's romantic or platonic. That's awful. I agree. If you look at his body, he's looking up to her. He's looking at her. This is how he was found. And then you see where he was. They were looking at each other. Oh, okay. That's his head right there. And she's looking up to him, yeah. J.C. Sebring, located approximately four feet from Sharon Tate, was on his right side in an east-west direction with his head to the east. His legs extended at an angle perpendicular to his body in a blood-drenched towel covering his head. The same rope that was around Sharon was also wrapped around Sebring. Stab wounds, a large abrasion on his face, blood-drenched clothing were observed. And I guess there was a point where they were thinking of cutting Sharon's baby out of her. I don't know why, if they were going to use it for a sacrifice and kill it or... Oh, I thought you meant like investigators. Okay. No, the murderers were going to do that. Beyond disturbing. And here, can you see these now? I can, yeah. These are some extra pictures. Here's another picture of Sharon Tate's home. Those were Abigail. Is that? And then there's the other Kowski that's over on that side. There's another picture of Abigail where her stab wounds all were. Now this we're getting into next is Lino LaBianca and his wife, Rosemary. That is so eerie to me every time it comes up, the fact that her name was Rosemary. And I know it's a very loose connection to the film, but as we talked about last episode, that movie is supposed to be incredibly cursed. And like when I came up on that research that her name was Rosemary, I'm like the fact that she was murdered the same night as Sharon Tate, whose connection has been thought by a lot of paranormal researchers to have been the result, the curse on this film. Obviously, you cannot take out the Manson and the Manson family out of that scenario, but it just goes to show that even this is another nod from the universe to that Mm -hmm. film you can't convince me otherwise that's too eerie of a coincidence i'll agree with you courtney on that it's just too eerie of a coincidence things like this just doesn't happen roman polanski working on that movie i think that was the start of everything and it's sad at least for this set of people i will have to correct you on august 10th 1969 lino and rosemary labianca retired to bed disturbed by the news of sharon tate's violent murder 
across town the day before. Tate's house was left filled with bodies and the word pig scrawled in blood on the wall. Little did the LaBiancas know that the sinister forces responsible for Tate's death would soon arrive at their doorstep, subjecting them to an even more horrific fate. No, born Pasqualino Antonio LaBianca, followed in his father's footsteps in the grocery store industry after serving in World War II. After divorcing his first wife, he married Rosemary in Las Vegas in 1959 or 1960. Rosemary, with a more unconventional childhood, had been adopted by a California couple after living in an Arizona orphanage. After divorcing her first husband in 1958, she married Lino. Rosemary co-founded a high-end clothing store. They spent time with each other's children, who were teenagers and young adults by the time of the murders. On the day before the murder, the LaBianca spent time with Rosemary's children. The couple drove to Lake Isabella, where they meant to pick up Rosemary's son, Frank. However, plans changed and they returned to Los Angeles, dropping off Rosemary's daughter, Susan, before heading home. Disturbed by the news of Sharon Tate's murder, Rosemary chatted with a newsstand owner about the Tate murders. That's so eerie. Her death? Sorry, not to interrupt you, but that's... She actually was there at a newsstand talking about the Tate murders that happened the night before. Jesus. Okay. Rosemary had previously written to Lino's daughter about odd occurrences in their house, expressing concern about potential robbers. In the early hours of August 10th, 1969, Rosemary retired to bed while Lino stayed up in the living room. Unaware of the dark force on the move, Manson and his followers targeted the LaBianca's home, seemingly chosen randomly based on the location. Manson and his right-hand man, Charles Tex Watson, entered the LaBianca house, promising only robbery. Watson stabbed Lino in the neck when he resisted. In the bedroom, Rosemary fought back against Patricia Krenwinkel and Leslie Van Houten. Despite Rosemary's pleas, they stabbed her multiple times. Words were written in blood on the walls, and the killers left after showering and petting the LaBianca's dogs. Manson Manson instructed Linda Kasabian, the getaway driver, to drop Rosemary's wallet in a black neighborhood, intending to frame someone else for the murders. Because remember, he wanted to start a race war the whiteys and the blackies. However, plans change and Kasabian hid the wallet in a gas station bathroom. The next day, the LaBianco's children discovered their parents' bodies. Lino was found in the living room, hands tied in a cord around his neck, and Rosemary lay on her bedroom floor, stabbed 41 times. 41? Oh with words God. written in blood. This is their home right here. Okay. A little close-up of it. It's charming. There's Lino and Rosemary. She was a very beautiful woman. This is that night. It's a, This is a, a picture when the detectives were there. Found this very odd. Yeah, what is that? I don't know. What we're Our, looking at right now, Courtney, tell them what you're looking at. To me, it looks like a spider web on the camera, but that obviously isn't what it is. Whoever took the picture would have n- noticed that. And obviously, too, it takes a good bit of time to create a spider web, but that's what it looks like to me it also looks paranormal but 
It looks very paranormal to me. Like, um, just to give you the visual of what we're looking at, can we post this on our website? Everything that we talk about tonight, beside okay. the really gory photos. Yeah, we can't I, post that, obviously. Yeah, I will post things that we're speaking of that we can post, but... This image will be on there. And this image will be yeah. on there. I think this is paranormal. And the reason why is because, number one, this is after the murders were discovered the LaBianca murders, mm -hmm. okay, you would be able to see the detail of the spider web. Is, oh, yeah, you're right. I didn't even think is, about that. No, this is a camera from the detectives. They, well, you have to think they're right. taking a ton of like photos all at one time. To me, it looks like that. However, I don't see how that's possible because there's no way from one picture to the next that a spider web will have been made on the camera. Sorry, I didn't explain that well earlier it looks like it to give you guys a visual picture i there's no way in hell that's actually what it is it's not possible and the other thing is these are the crime scene people this is what they do for a living their cameras aren't collecting dust they're not going to take pictures if they notice a fingerprint or a dust ball before they snap the pic that would hinder the crime scene photos now Take a look closer, Courtney. Do you not see right oh here? Oh my, hold on a minute. Does that look like a fucking person? Sorry, not to be crass, but the head, and then it looks like a chest, the arms are coming out, and then it fades away towards the legs. And right? then look at this. Do you not think that these are two eyes? Oh, it don't, It does look like a face. And look right here. Here's an eyeball. Yeah. Here's an eyeball. The nose. There's the chin. Oh, I wasn't even looking. At it. it almost looks like a full-fledged body, but now that you're pointing it out that way. It, to um, me, there are two faces in this photo. They're distorted, but I think that when someone is murdered, it's a traumatic event. Your soul leaves in a jolted way. It has to come to grips of what has happened. The other thing that you have to consider with traumatic deaths is this. They likely, unfortunately, had no idea after the fact you know what i mean they say that a lot of times that's how hauntings occur because they don't know that they have crossed over and therefore cannot pass on to the next life or to heaven or whatever they're stuck in a non-corporeal form because they are the way that their death occurred was so dra traumatic and so quick that their conscious mind could not keep up to what was happening to their soul and their body i don't it's hard to say what's happening for this specific entity or entities if that's what they are to me it looks like a thick plasma it looks it like mist and the other thing too that i wanted to mention earlier guys go and look at this picture avoid the crime scene photos at all costs because that really just tore our hearts wide open but this picture in in particular it cannot to me be like a spider web Obviously, like we said, we've debunked that. This is where my investigation is coming out. Cannot be a fingerprint because we all know what that looks like on a camera lens. This is like, it, it. you'd be able to see the grooves of your fingerprint or whoever touched the camera lens. And a professional crime scene photographer would have caught that. They would not have been able to submit this as evidence. And it obviously <laughs> does have, it's labeled as if it has been. That's just, I, obviously the photography back in the day was very different than what it is today. There's a lot that comes to be with the development process and there's a lot that can go wrong in that process. But again, and I'm no expert, but I don't think that they would include that in evidence if it was something that you couldn't see. It would not 
provide a like an image into evidence into a file or at least i don't think they would that had been tampered with or damaged that didn't actually show a good depiction of the crime what scene. happened that night but so, they're still going to keep it because it's part of the investigation charles well, manson told the log labiancas that they were just being robbed and would not be hurt this is a picture of rosemary labiancas gold wristwatch one of the few items that was taken from the LaBianca home on the night of the murders. And here's her wallet that Manson gave to Linda Kasabian, which Linda's the one that you heard earlier tell the story. Yeah. So she was involved in this murder, but she was only the getaway driver. Why do people want to murder? I just don't get it. It's also, too, the fact that he was able to take normal people with good hearts, at least as far as we can tell up until that point, all evidence would suggest that they were upstanding citizens. And the fact that he was able to brainwash these people into doing something so horrific. This is where Linda had put the wallet right here. Did she do toilet. that as an act of defiance? I think so. I think she did it because she said, I'm going to turn myself in. It wasn't until December. This was August. But still. She was fighting with it, which I give her credit for that. I give her credit for fighting with mm -hmm. it. And, and she ended up doing it. Did I wish she would have done it before that so people wouldn't have died? Of course, I think everybody wishes that would happen, but it didn't. And we just have to look at it now as thank God she did. Oh, gosh, this is the knife. Okay. And this is another thing I wanted to show you. The other tool. Oh, God. So the LaBiancas, this carving fork was found sticking out of Lino's stomach. So if everybody knows what a carving fork is, it has the handle and then it looks like a fork, but only has two prongs on it. That's what Lino was stabbed yeah. with. But, I mean, yeah. that carving fork is going to be obviously incredibly sharp. It's mm. like basically two blades on the end of a knife. If that is any sort of description for you, it's that's astounding. You'll never look at Oh. One of the same way again, yeah. No. And then this is a steak knife that was discovered stuck in the throat of Lino when the coroner had removed the pillowcase from his head before conducting the autopsy. So, so he had two instruments, for lack of a better word, in his body discovered. Because the carving fork was used to carve the word war that you saw. Oh, Okay. You remember? Yeah. Okay. And here's what they wrote on their wall. Death to pigs. Rise. And then there's the phone cords and different kind of cords that they were tied up with. Helter Skelter was on the front of the refrigerator. And see, you could tell, look, their coin collection, they even left it there. So they didn't even rob at all. Yeah. They, like, took nothing. They like, took enough to be identifiable where they could plant it and basically pin the entire event on somebody else. As we mentioned right. earlier, that's all they did. That was the here's where Lino was carved with the the fork where it says war. What that's what they used for him because it was left in his stomach after they did it. So that's in his stomach. I don't know. I guess that makes sense now that I'm looking at it. It looked like the bottom of his foot for some reason. Could you imagine how much that would hurt to be stabbed? Have you ever thought about that? Right and. And then to keep going after the fact, how many, Rosemary was, she was stabbed mm -hmm. nearly 50 times. How do you even have the energy to do that? How do you have enough hate in your body to do that too? All right. Oh. I, anyways. Now I'm going to go through real quick 
a little bit about the Manson family, what ended up happening to them. Do you know why they called it, like why he called it the Manson family, why that was the name, specifically the family portion? I'd never understood that. Manson thought of himself like the patriarch and then everybody else was part of the family. That makes sense. Okay. I just didn't really understand the psychology behind it at all. But obviously that's, it's a household name. So I was just, if I didn't know, I'm sure other people were also like, why that name? It's a great question. Now, let me go through real quick. Uh, These crazed Manson people, Linda Kasabian, she was born in June, she was born on June 21st, 1949 in Bitterford, Maine. She moved to Los Angeles in 1968 and joined Manson's followers She turned herself in in December 1969 and received immunity. She died on January 21st, 2023 at age 73. Then we have Lynette Tweaky from. She was born October 22nd, 48 in Santa Monica, California. She was the trusted associate of Manson, not involved in any of the Tate LaBianca murders. She attempted to kill President Gerald Ford, though, in 1975 and for that she was sentenced to life she was paroled in 2008 she published a book about her life in 2018 she was born in santa monica joined manson in 1967 at spawn ranch they named her squeaky due to the sounds that she made when touched by ranch owner george spawn She didn't participate in Manson's murders, but remained devoted to the family. Yeah, isn't that gross? She was the one that they had messing with George to keep him happy. What a nickname. We are coming to Susan Adkins. She was charged with murdering pregnant actor Sharon Tate. She died from brain cancer in 2009 at age 61. She was born in San Gabriel, faced a troubled childhood with her mother's death and her father's alcoholism. By 67, she lived in Los Venos, worked as a waitress, enjoyed Manson's commune in San Francisco. Known as Sadie Mae Glutz in the Manson family, Atkins participated in the Gary Hinman murder in 69, where they wrote political piggy in blood on the wall. She was present at the Cielo Drive in La Bianca murders, arrested on unrelated charges in 69. Atkins was sentenced to death in 71 later commuted to life in 72. She renounced Manson, became a born-again Christian, don't they all? Married twice in prison, diagnosed with brain cancer in 08. She requested compassionate release, but was denied. Atkins okay, died good. in... I know, right? To me, how can you even ask that? I have I don't some like, get really that. nasty things to say, and I'm going to hold my tongue. Murr. Almost done. Okay. At least we were able to accomplish what we wanted to accomplish. Can you see this now? Last time I went through all of the different settings and it came up. So I'm going to maybe try this way. No. Okay. Oh, no, it's happening. So this is Susan Atkins. She's the one that supposedly expressed remorse. She's the one that stabbed Sharon Tate. She looks scary. This is Susan Atkins describing when she went with them to the Tates. That she also wanted to reveal something new about the murders. What happened that night you all went to Sharon Tate's house? What really happened? Well, I remember getting in the car with Tex and... Tex Watson. Tex Watson and my other two co-defendants. Three co-defendants, actually. Um, 
And before I ever got in the car, Tex and I had our own special little stash of uh, cocaine. You know, I think it was cocaine or methadrine, I'm not sure which. And we were speeding. We both snorted some speed and got in the car. We were very, very wired. drove to the house uh, with instructions to kill everyone in the house. From Charlie? Yeah. Um, and not just that, but that we were instructed to go all the way down every house, hit every house on the... On the street? On the street, yes. And kill all the people kill in all those the houses? all the people in all those houses. Um, and we went into the house, and I remember that... As we went in, uh, a car came up to the driveway, and I remember Tex getting out, and without saying anything, they were gunned by a sh shot. I was in the bushes, and... Uh, That's when the young boy, Stephen Parent, was, right, killed, was killed in the right. car outside. Right. The people in the house were all brought into the living room and tied up, and... I remember that Wojtek Bakowski, I believe is his name, I had tied his hands with a towel and then was instructed to kill him. And I raised the knife that I had in my hand and I couldn't put the knife down. I, I, could not, I couldn't bring it down. It was just as though there was a force there that held my wrist and I couldn't, I couldn't move. And as he saw that I couldn't move, then he very easily undid the ties, the towel that I had tied his wrist with, and he and I began to fight. And I remember I was screaming for help, and he was screaming for help, and uh, then Tex came and helped me, and I was left to sit and watch Sharon Tate. And about that time, it, I can remember seeing people just scattering in different places and running in different places. And I was left sitting with Sharon Tate, and she was talking to me. And I remember that I had absolutely, I could have, I felt nothing. I felt absolutely nothing for her um, as she begged for her life and for the life of her baby. And, uh, When we first went in, uh, one of the people said, who are you? And Tex said, I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. And I remember that in my conscience, it, it's so alive in me, even just recalling it. I remember that I had gone so far, and there was no turning back. There, even if I had wanted to run, even if I had wanted to leave, I couldn't. It was like I was caught in something that I had no control over. I had absolutely no say-so as to what was happening there. I was just like a tool in the hands of the devil is the only way I can put it. And I believe that it was by the grace of God that my hand did not go down with that knife on Wojciech Kowski's chest. I believe that... Uh, so who did kill those people? That night? Yeah. Tex.
Well, I can ask you now, what, what did Tex really do there? Of what I saw happening in Tex, the way he moved, the viciousness and cold, um, it was just like seeing somebody go crazy with more power than I've ever seen anybody. I don't think he was in control of himself. I think that he was, in their own human strength, could do what Tex did. Well, Charles night. Manson was in control of him, right? Yeah, as far as giving orders, but I don't think Charles Manson's mind was in control of Tex's mind that night. Now that's where I want to stop on this part. You remember Chris Watts, right? Who killed Shanann and his two little girls. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Sorry. That took me a second to get there. I'm like, I know this name. Yep. You know the name. When he described what he did was that when he got on top of Shanann, it felt like someone was putting their hands, like felt like there was someone behind him that were putting I their hands that. on his arm and enveloping him. He said the same thing Susan Atkins said. The other thing with the Chris Watts case, didn't they like catch evidence, like images of his daughter after she'd been murdered on the body cams when they were going through his house? Yep, up the steps. I don't, it's hard to say whether Chris or Susan Atkins is telling the truth here, but there is something to be said that both of those cases definitely have a paranormal element to them. I don't necessarily know if I agree with her when she's like, oh, I had an out-of-body experience and couldn't have stopped if I wanted to. It's the but, fact that you obviously didn't. <laughs> and I agree with you. I have also asked, what is evil? It's the devil. If you mm -hmm. believe in God and Jesus, then you know there's a devil. What's not to say that's what evil is, is that you've oh. let it come into your life. We've all heard murderers say, I heard voices. The devil told me to do it. What's to say that a devil, a demonic entity can't inhibit a body? to right. make you do something. And then after the fact, you're like, what I just do? And I think the other thing that's worth mentioning here, which that's a fantastic point. It's not necessarily the fact that they're claiming that they were possessed, which I don't think that was the case at all. But no, me on, either. on other side of that coin, like you were just saying, there is the idea, and we talk about this all the time, intention is everything. So if you're bringing negativity into your life, or let's say, participating in things that are negative and you know that they're not for the good of the world and of your highest self and your highest purpose if you're bringing in that negativity then you're going to bring in negative and negative intelligence and that can also sway how you make your decisions it's not that you didn't make the decision because you did in fact make that decision if you have these negative forces around you and they always say that negative entities and demonic entities can infest your life and they're going to make everything kind of a glass half empty sort of a situation. Mm -hmm. You still made the choice. Chris Watts still made the choice. Right. But I do see what you're saying. The devil can influence people. And I think that's what's happening in a lot of these crimes. Right. And it's not I'll possession. Say, it isn't. And I'll say this and we can leave it there because i think this is very powerful you cannot no matter what your religious beliefs are you cannot believe in the good without the bad because any christian out there is going to say if they believe in jesus christ if they believe in god the father they're also going to believe that there is satan lucifer whatever you want to call him back in the undead days me and satan we were like spooky buddies 
We'd catch up over a cup of cursed coffee, discuss the latest in underworld happenings. Good times. But let me tell you, even Satan was like, whoa, Manson, that guy's on a whole other level. It's like even the Prince of Darkness couldn't keep up with that twisted tale. Friendship with Satan, not for the faint-hearted, let me tell you. Coming from a pagan perspective, you can't have light without the dark. You know what I mean? Even though it's a different word for whatever deity that is, you can't have one without the other. There cannot be good without the bad. There cannot be life without the dark. There right. cannot be and God without the devil. Manson, I call him one of the devil's rejects. Yeah. I think that he had something evil in him that he passed off on everybody else that made them do that. I can see that. But I can 100% see that. Moving on, Leslie Van Houten used drugs at 15, joined a hippie commune, and then found Manson. She was recommended for parole five times. Uh, she was charged with murdering Lino and Rosemary LaBianca. She was released on July 11, 2023 at age 70. Oh my God, I remember that. I remember when she was released. I'm sure all of us do, but... I'd love to interview her. Yeah, I'd be terrified the whole time. Patricia Krenwinkel... Born December 3rd, 47 in L.A., considered being a nun, dropped out of Jesuit college, convicted of brutally stabbing Abigail Folger and Rosemary LaBianca, granted parole in May 2020, but reversed by Governor Gavin Newsom. She remains incarcerated. She joined Manson in 1967. She was sentenced to death in 71. Her punishment was later commuted to life in prison in 72, because that's when the law changed. Denied parole at least 10 times and used a legal defense related to intimate partner battery. She said that Manson and Watson beat her up, and so she was left to do it. That's why. Tex Watson, born December 2nd, 1945, honor student and athlete, immersed in the drug and music scene. He was an honor student? And an athlete. He was like a star football player. Right future ahead of him is what you're saying. Exactly. He led the charge in the Tate and LaBianca murders, claimed he was the devil. Quite weird that he said that. Okay. Current, serving a life sentence in Sacramento, California. He was denied parole a total of 18 times. Good. He's currently 77. He married Kristen Jones Veg in 1979, fathering four children through conjugal visits which were later discontinued in the late 1990s. He was last denied parole in October 2021. He's ineligible again until 2026. And this is a long episode. So anyone that I missed or we didn't get a chance to say, I will post information on our website, studio, uh, studio, studio sessions.blog. And usually I get all that stuff loaded up a day or two after the episode is published because I put extra stuff for you all to see, books to recommend, links, resources, documentaries. And I wanted to do this story because a few podcasts that I've listened to that covered Manson and the Manson family murders, to me, it just wasn't done with enough depth. And my mind's perfect. I think it's important to share a lot of the details. This was a deep dive for sure. I wanted people to feel what they went through, hear the story from, again, one of the people that were there. So you can see a very big picture of this hell that they experienced. I can't stop thinking about that photo that we talked about earlier with the like cloud in it again we, there's a paranormal aspect to this case which we'll talk about in our next episode but that is why this is so 
upsetting and fascinating at the same time. It's because it seems like the events were so horrific and traumatic that the souls remained after the fact. That's what bothers me. Ghost Adventures had gone to the Omen House to investigate. And mm-hmm. since then, Barrier Beyond has gone there. Their video is wild there. The different orbs that are caught. The one orb of what I thought was the spirit of Sharon Tate. And then a little small orb within the big orb that I think of as her little baby. But that's what gutted me the most is is that. And just knowing that these people are walking around Cielo Drive just lost or reliving it or I don't I don't know what happens. Again, we can talk about this next time too in more depth when we can really get the activity going on in this house. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me that a lot of the activity, there's some intelligent hauntings, but based off of the brief research that I've done thus far, I will say it is very brief. It seems to be very residual, which is sad. That kills me. Yeah. These people were so young. Sharon Tate was like 25, 26 years old. And Mm -hmm. I watched her sister's interview and she said, Sharon came home this one day and she had this big smile on her face. She said, we're pregnant. As a mom, that's what crushes me because she was so excited and the love she had for that baby. I can't imagine the chaos in that house that night. We're going to make this a part two. Courtney and I are going to work together combining on the story of the Omen House and after effects of death, the paranormal. We've gotten to it a little bit on this episode, but for now, I hope that you all enjoyed this sad deep dive of the horrific crime and in your own way, Say prayers for these people that lost their lives at such a young age that didn't get to do half of what we've done. And now comes the part of the show where Don the zombie gets to do his quote. So take it away, Don. And now for the quote of the episode by Unknown. I'm unsure which pain is worse, the shock of what happened or the ache for what never will. Whew. No. I'm not crying. It's secretions from my infected wounds. Thought you got me, huh? Nope. And hey, the girls busted their asses on this episode, so leave a damn good rating or review. If you aren't a podcaster, it's because you have no time, don't know how to, or you're just lazy. So give these stellar ladies some credit. All right, Sinister Seekers, we hope that you enjoyed the eerie tale that we spun for you today. Remember, we drop episodes like clockwork on the 1st, the 10th, and the 20th of every month. So don't miss out on your regular dose of macabre content and hit that follow button if you haven't already. We're haunting all the streaming platforms so you can catch us wherever you prefer. Connect with us on the dark corners of social media. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and TikTok. We're lurking around every corner. For those of you who crave more details, check out studiosessions.blog. It's an extension of our show, which features detailed show notes, links, audio and visual aids, and more. This year is all about sharing because sharing is caring. So help us reach new listeners by spreading the word 
share your favorite episode, and let's build a community of Sinister Seekers. And yes, Patreon perks will be coming your way. So keep your eyes and ears peeled for exclusive content and goodies. Merch will drop soon too. Don the Zombie will have his own undead collection. But before we go, do us a solid, leave us a rating or review because crafting these epic episodes takes so much work. Your love and feedback mean the world to Courtney and I. So until next time, Sinister Seekers, stay true. Stay you. Stay Stay sinister. sinister. In a world where the line between life and death blurs, Studio Sinister presents Manson's Haunting Legacy Part 2. Get ready for a spine-chilling journey into the afterlife as Farah and Courtney delve into the eerie aftermath of the Manson family murders. Unravel the mysteries of the paranormal, where the spirits of the Tate murder victims still linger. Witness the unseen, the Omen House on Cielo Drive. Step into the shadows of the infamous Omen House, where the echoes of tragedy refuse to fade. Are you ready to confront the spirits that walk the line between this world and the next? Paranormal Investigations Unleashed. Join us as we explore chilling evidence from ghostly whispers to inexplicable phenomena. Are you a skeptic daring to question the supernatural or a believer ready to embrace the unexplainable? The choice is yours. Coming soon to your favorite podcast platform. Don't miss the spectral sensation that will leave you questioning the boundaries of existence.